Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1334, entitled Chaos Talking. Our podcast title is Podstralia. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And here we are giggling away as usual at the start of another episode of Zero G on Free Triple R FM. Now, the science fiction and fantasy genres are full of single big theme stories, from the Quiet Place movie, where post-apocalyptic survivors must remain silent lest sound-tracking monsters discover them, to the Cold Souls, a movie where people overwhelmed by emotions can have their souls extracted by a machine to soothe their troubled lives. Now, some have directed Douglas Lyman's other science fiction films, for example, like Jumper and Edge of Tomorrow. They also revolve around massive mono ideas, time travel, time loops in the case of Edge of Tomorrow. So, Megan, what's the big concept idea behind... Mr. Lyman's Chaos Walking movie. Yes, so this is the latest from him. And as you mentioned, it is held together by one big idea. And so that is that in this dystopic near future, we're on a inhabited planet known as New World. So it's been colonized and there are two key things to note. There are no women here and everyone can hear everyone else's inner thoughts. And they're sort of not necessarily even here. That's not quite right. It's visualized. So this is something called the noise and individuals can control this to varying degrees and it does manifest in a visual way and it can be quite vivid. And so it does depend on each individual as to how much noise you have or how in control of that you are. So there's a pretty obvious metaphor here for, you know, being in control and so on. And it's very much juxtaposed with maybe not in the film so much, but I think in the source material around this idea of coming of age and masculinity and puberty and so on. So let's dig in a little bit to this one. As you mentioned, it is called Chaos Walking. It's a sci-fi dystopia film directed by Doug Lyman, who has done other films such as you mentioned Jumper and Edge of Tomorrow already. And he's also got some action films under the belt with things like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, The Born Identity and Go, which is from quite a while back now, sort of a crime film as well. So he's been around the block and he knows how to program his action. Now, one thing to note about this film is that it's actually based on a book series. So the screenplay for this particular film, the credits are Patrick Ness and Christopher Ford, but we'll dig in a little bit to the development of this film a bit later. But yes, it is based on a young adult sci-fi series and the name of the series, because you know, sometimes there'll be a book released and then they'll come up with the idea of what the series is actually called. The first book is actually called The Knife of Never Letting Go. And that is what this film is rather loosely based on in some ways. And the book series is by Patrick Ness, who 
as I just mentioned, also had a hand in the screenplay for this film. And there are three books in that series, the Chaos Walking series, and it is very well received and very well loved. So it was awarded quite a lot of awards, literary awards, when they were released. And one thing to note too is in the series, the protagonist is younger than in the film. I haven't actually read the books, but I am intrigued. So we've got our book series. Is it a young adult series, as so many of these ones are? Yes. So it is a young adult series directed around those ideas of coming of age and so on, very much tied into two young protagonists. So it would fall under the banner of young adult, and that's probably where you would find it in the bookshop. Not to say that there isn't appeal there for older readers as well. All right. So let's dig in a little bit to this one. So I actually stumbled on this film. I hadn't heard of it at all. And I think one of the reasons for that is there's not very much marketing and it is a bit of a chicken and egg situation, but I think there's not much marketing because it hasn't been that well received critically. And it had a little bit of a, a troubled production, we could say, <laughs> which we'll, we'll dig into a little bit later, as I mentioned. So it stars Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. And that is one of the reasons why I was surprised that I hadn't heard too much about this one, because those guys are pretty hot right now. Top names and as we know and love Tom Holland from his turn as Spider-Man, Peter Parker, in the Marvel MCU films. And he has another one coming up that he's working on as well. But we are familiar with him from those films and Daisy Ridley, of course, her role as Rey in the Star Wars franchise. So we've got these two big names at the front. And I'll also say, too, the rest of the cast is pretty amazing. So we've also got... In supporting roles, Mads Mikkelsen, who plays the mayor of Prentice Town, is the name of the town where we sort of start our story. We, of course, know Mads from his roles in Doctor Strange. He was in Rogue One, and he's going to be replacing Johnny Depp as Grindelwald in the Fantastic Beasts franchise. Uh, we also have Nick Jonas in this. We've seen him. Obviously, he has a pop career, but he's also been in those Jumanji movies, which I really love. <laughs> The Jumanji reboots are really cool. Oh, absolutely. And he was also in the film Midway, which I think you saw, which was a a war pick. Yeah, very solid movie, that. Mm -mm. So we've got a lot of names here and also David Oyeloyo. He was also in Rise of Planet of the Apes. He was in A Wrinkle in Time and he plays a preacher in this story. And also I'll mention as well that... Tom Holland plays our key character, Todd Hewitt. So he's sort of who the book's perspective is from. And also we start the film with him and he very clearly becomes our main protagonist. But as the story progresses, uh, Daisy Ridley appears as a second character called Viola. And as we know, yes, she is female. So the premise that I mentioned, it does get thrown into a bit of a state of confusion. Yes, she lands on this planet and she does not have the noise. And so... Thus begins our story. So Todd is living quietly in Prentice Town and it is very firmly ruled over by Mads Mikkelsen as the mayor. And it's a kind of a pretty gross vibe, to be honest. And they set it up as such. And then, of course, when he's out in the forest, he stumbles upon Viola and they begin a quest together and they face certain challenges and they get pursued. And so it's one sort of this, let's get you to safety type of situation. But of course, it's never that easy. And we do uncover some secrets and mysteries along the way. Why no women on the planet? Ah, uh, that is something that we will have to find out more about in the film. 
film. I won't ruin anything, but they do sort of offer a bit of a vague premise in some of the press. There was an event. The women have disappeared. So it's not something like it's evolved to be all just men. There was something that happened and it's to do with the colonization of this world. Because as we know, a lot of places, they're not new. This isn't a new world. There were people here before our colonizers arrived. Because otherwise that would sound like Brian K. Vaughan's The Last Man series, which is prefaced by the letter Y, mm-hmm. and, but a kind of a reversal of that. That is actually a, a fairly classic science fiction trope, having you know only one man or one woman on a planet or in, mm-hmm. a, in a, an environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the main thing to sort of pull out of the film is this idea of the noise and how that is portrayed in the film. In regards to that, at the start of the film, when we're following Todd as he goes about his day and we see him struggle to control his noise and his interactions with the other men in the town, and we start to get a bit of a feeling of exactly how this world runs and the kind of life that Todd leads, it's very chaotic. And I mean, like the title is accurate and chaotic, not in a great way in that just the way it was portrayed was quite difficult for me as a viewer to grasp onto. But the film really comes into its stride when we pair up Todd and Viola on their quest. So we've got Tom and Daisy off together and that is where it really starts to find its pace where we've only got one person who has the noise and the other person who does not. And so that dynamic is where the film starts to find its feet. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't quite find enough of its feet and we'll get a little bit more into those thoughts but maybe should we listen to a little bit of a track from the film from the soundtrack so the score is done by marco beltrami and brandon roberts and i thought here we would take a bit of a listen to friendship theme this is kim stanley robinson author of red mars green mars and blue mars you're listening to zero g on three triple r Yes. That was, of course, Friendship Theme. We are talking about the film Chaos Walking, the latest in the sci-fi dystopia young adult films to be released. That score was by Marco Beltrami and Brandon Robert. So Marco Beltrami uh, did recognize that name and he has done a lot of different scores and does do a bit in the horror genre. So he's done scores for things like A Quiet Place, which you mentioned earlier, Rob, one of the Terminator films, one of the Die Hard films. He did the score for Snowpiercer, which is very relevant to our interest here on Zero G. We had a bit of a chat about the new TV series last week, the second season of that. And he also did Logan, Hellboy. So he's got quite the suite of scores underneath his belt. Under his Beltrami. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. He also did Lucifer, so he seems to have an infernal sort of uh, thing going on there. (laughs) Yeah, he's got quite the resume. So I'd actually be interested in checking out some of those scores. Yes, so we are talking about Chaos Walking based on the book series Chaos Walking by Patrick Ness. The first film is based on The Knife of Never Letting Go, which I think is a really great book title, personally, but I can sort of see why they changed it. All right. Before I kind of get more into my thoughts, I think what I'll talk a bit about is, as I mentioned earlier, there's not been much marketing. I think that's to do with the fact the film has been poorly received, but also there's been a bit of production issues in the lead up. So it got pushed back because of COVID. There had to be some reshoots done. And the person who did the reshoots was a different director those reshoots had to happen sort of quite delayed because this film actually started filming a while ago. But because 
Daisy and Tom had other things going on, like, you know, Star Wars movies and Spider-Man and Avengers movies and so on. That was all very delayed. So the reshoots happened quite a while after and then coronavirus, you know, had its hand in the schedule and pushing things back. So we're really in a bit of a kerfuffle when it comes to, to that. And the reshoots did happen because the film didn't test very well. And another thing that I did notice when I was actually looking up this film right after I saw it was there are about seven people who have some kind of screenwriting credit on this film. Now, when I see that, that to me screams rewrites and changes and people coming in and going out. And so delved in a bit more. And yes, so there was a first script written by Charlie Kaufman. You know, Charlie Kaufman of Eternal Sunshine Spotless Mind, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, all of that. We know Charlie very well here. And I imagine that was probably a very different script to the film we ended up seeing. And then we've had rewrites happen. We've had about six other writers come in, and that includes Patrick Ness, who, of course, wrote the book series. So that, to me, also hints on maybe what was happening wasn't what the studio wanted. Things were too weird. Because the premise, the the thing with these movies, as you say, that have a kind of central interesting premise is kind of how it's executed, I think, makes quite a big difference into how well it can translate to the screen. So it's possible that this premise is more difficult to get from the page to screen, or it could be that the way it was done here just didn't quite hit the mark. I don't think it was wildly off, but I do think there's maybe some elements around this translation that I can see underneath good little nuggets and places the film could have gone and things that could have been more fleshed out that I would have like to see. So maybe the procedural is a little off. I think so. I would say that there's maybe something around what are we prioritizing here? Are we prioritizing Todd's inner monologue and voice and his development as a coming of age character? Or are we prioritizing the mystery of what's happening on this new world? Or are we making it a love story? So I just don't think there was any agreement on some of those, how much percentage of each of those things was going to go in here. Yeah. So I went in, so I went in with very low expectations and it was not nearly as poor as what I expected. And it's also not nearly as bad as what the reviews would suggest either. I think it's been done a little bit dirty, to be honest. It is certainly not a terrible film. I wouldn't say it's a great film. If anything, it's just a bit bleh. Maybe it should have been streamed instead of putting it into the cinemas. Possibly, but I think we get into this position where they spent, I think, like a hundred million on this in the end, and they probably reach a point where they still want to just give it a good old crack in the cinema because they feel they've invested all of this money but didn't find an audience. And I do think part of the problem is I don't know who this movie is for. It is not strictly, it does not have all of the markers. I mean, yeah, we've cast Daisy and Tom and they appeal to a younger audience, but I wouldn't say this is something like a Hunger Games or a Divergent. So it's not really marketed or, and it doesn't really fall there, but it's neither a dark sci-fi for a more adult audience either. Like there are some darkish elements, but sometimes it falls into a little bit of, caricature a little bit and that didn't quite hit the mark because the book is young adult but the movie could have very easily been for a more broader older audience and I don't think we ever really reconciled that either who are we making this film for is it for fans of the book or are we trying to attract new viewers to the this story 
and then get them to read the book. Where does the hundred million come in on the film? Because I've, I watched the trailer and it doesn't seem okay. The, the alien world seems just you know like wherever they shot it, yeah. And it doesn't seem to be a special effects heavy film. Am I missing something in the budget? Did they like pay? Tom and Daisy, a whole bunch of money. <laughs> I think probably maybe they threw Mads quite a bit of cash possibly to get him in there as like a name. I don't think, I mean, Tom and Daisy probably had decent salaries themselves. I know the reshoots, I think I read that chunk of reshoots was like 15 million. That's quite a lot. So yeah, but you're right. There's you're not really missing anything. There is some special effects, but but you're right. I'm not sure where that is reflected, the money. <laughs> so. Yeah, there are elements of the story that are interesting. It's certainly enough that I was like, I wonder what the book is like. And that is a good, that's a good sign. Yeah, that's good. The characters, ooh, some of the fringe characters, very thin. There's the preacher character. He's, he's the worst and he's just annoying and unnecessary. I think he could have been probably cut from the narrative altogether. In my opinion, he is not bringing anything to. It's sad. It's a sad use of that actor as well because he's a brilliant actor. The book is praised for having a lot of themes and exploration. So themes around gender politics, moral dilemmas, you know, figuring out who you are as you grow up and, and how much of yourself to be vulnerable and what war is and things like that. I could see some of those here, like a little bit around, you know, toxic masculinity themes like, oh, I have to be a man. I can't show vulnerability. Some of that shadows, bare, faint shadows. And we could have done a bit more with that. But there was also some humor there where the rapport between Viola and Todd, there are some moments where I was like, oh, if we'd had more of this, if we'd spent more time on this portion, this would have been a really lovely film. But then they bring in all these big story elements that aren't that interesting and they start to suffocate like the little sprout of, of interesting dynamic that we've cultivated with the two leads. So I think it's just the tone and timing and, and what they wanted to do is it was too haphazard and I think that's what detracts from what could have probably been a really interesting and engaging bittersweet film. That being said, it wasn't. It's not the disaster that Rotten Tomatoes would <laughs> lead you to believe it is. Um, there are moments where I'm like, oh, that would be mortifying. You've this is this feels real. You've used this premise to reflect something quite real, a real moment. And I just wanted more than just one or two of those. I wanted that to be the core of the film. I can see the potential, which is kind of even worse. So it's disappointing. Like if it had just been bad and silly. That could have gone, oh, it was bad and silly. You'd catch it on streaming if you want. But I do think there's a bit of a missed opportunity here. It just wasn't that satisfying in the conclusion or at the end. It just felt like an empty meal, which is not the worst criticism, I guess, in the world. Yeah, I think all of that development hell, the changing of the screenplay, maybe there were certain ideas they didn't want to let go of, but it just held the film back. Yeah. In terms of our zero-G rating of yeah, nah, maybe? <laughs> Probably a maybe. I wouldn't rush out to see it. It's at the picks right now. I, I Certainly you don't need to see it on the big screen. If you're a fan of either of those actors, Daisy Ridley or Tom Holland, yeah, check it out. There are some key moments of Tom Hollandy humour that we kind of recognise from, you know, his other roles. If you're a fan of them, I think it's worth a look. 
but I'd hesitate to, to recommend it to fans of the book. I'm not sure about whether it's a fair depiction, but I also can't say because I have not read the book. So if you've read the book and you don't know whether to go, I'm afraid I can't help you because I don't know if you'd be disappointed or not, quite frankly. So maybe it's a maybe for me. I think that it was probably a little bit unfairly panned though. I don't think it's a complete disaster. (laughs) Is that the best you could say of it? (laughs) I know. Isn't that awful? Like I think, you know, this is kind of in my wheelhouse. Like this should be a film that I'm excited for and it can't even appeal to me. Like, yeah, bit of a miss. So that's chaos walking. (laughs) Doug Lyman, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And I love his other stuff. I think Edge of Tomorrow is a ripper. We'll see. I don't know if they'll end up with movie two based on book two. I'm not sure after this, the studio had to do a write down, which is where they admit they lost money on a film. So I don't think we'll be seeing any more in this series, unfortunately, at least not in this format. Maybe it's more suited to a TV series. See, there's some of these one concept movies like Colossal. Mm. Or, uh, now what was that up for me? What, Palm Springs? Is it? Yeah, Palm Springs. Which one? Note perfect, that were joys to watch and they really lent into their procedural and they yeah. thoroughly explored it. <clears throat> they were science fiction movies in the fullest sense of the word because they actually looked at it and said, well, these are the consequences going out from our big idea. Yeah, yeah, and they knew what they were. Uh, another one I that comes to mind is a film called Perfect Sense that has Eva Green and Ewan McGregor where yeah. they – you know, it's sort of this pandemic, but everybody loses one of their senses, one at all their senses, one at a time. Quite horrific, but a really great film. And it's a bit more of a, a serious turn. But again, I think it took that premise and did a beautiful job of showing that. So a bit sad that this one didn't fly. <laughs> so it's like other movies that you could watch instead. <laughs> no, we didn't. Not intentionally, but to be fair, if you haven't seen any of those ones we've mentioned, go watch them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, yeah, Chaos Walking by Doug Lyman. It's in cinemas now, but, um, yeah, see it at your <laughs> own risk. <laughs> Keep on stepping. Mm. <laughs> All right, so we are going to play a little bit of a speech here from Guillermo de Toro's Pacific Rim, and it is, of course, the chief of the Pan-Pacific Defence Corps having a go at a speech to rally the troops. Idris Elba from Pacific Rim. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah. (laughs) Troops rallied, yes, sir, the apocalypse. (laughs) Successfully averted from Pacific Rim, and that was Idris Elba, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Not exactly playing his Heimdall role there. (laughs) No. Now. In 2013, director Guillermo del Toro released the U.S. American giant monster film, Pacific Rim. Mm -hmm. Was it a colossal success? Well, not quite, but it was successful enough to deliver a sequel written and directed by Stephen S. DeKnight. Mm -hmm. And since then, there's been a 2013 Xbox slash PlayStation game and some other minor spin-offs. Now, in March 2021, muscling its way through a breach comes the Japanese-US-American anime Pacific Rim, The Black, Ooh. which is seven episodes strong and streaming on Netflix. 
Now, this animated series was developed and co-written by executive producers Greg Johnson and Craig Kyle. It's a Netflix original, and it's directed by Hiroki Hayashi and Jae Hong Kim. Now, Johnson has worked on an impressive range of animated series stretching back to the 1990s, particularly ones developed from existing live-action and comic book franchises, including animated series slash features like Planet Hulk, a favourite of mine, Mm -hmm. Next Avengers, Doctor Strange, The Invincible Iron Man, including, as well as that recent animated feature, he did the mid-1990s series too, Mm -hmm. which I'm particularly fond of. He's also worked on Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. And Kyle is a writer and producer who worked on the MCU movies Thor Ragnarok, Iron Man, and the animated series Iron Man Armored Adventures. That's the one with the teenage Tony Stark. And he's done a lot of other ones that I've also just listed for Johnson. So, you know, they're a team. Hiroki Hayashi has, to his credit, anime like the comprehensively named Lord El Meloy 2's Case Files Rail Zeppelin Grace Note. (laughs) (laughs) That is just the most awesome title. He also did Strike Witches and the well-regarded two 1990s series worth of Bubblegum Crisis. Ooh. I love those. That's the ones where you've got the little mecha suits piloted by the usual bunch of young women, and they're <laughs> trying to bring order to a crime-beset Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And Jay Hong Kim worked on the animated series Dragons Race to the Edge, Ben 10 Omniverse, and Lost in Oz. And that's not Oz as in Australia. It's the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Although... That would certainly be relevant to Pacific Rim, the black, which is indeed set in Oz, down under. Now, the basic plot of the Pacific Rim movies, well, it's effectively pushed to the stops here. The entire continent of Australia has been overwhelmed on land by the same kind of interdimensional breaches that we saw on the ocean floor in the films, hence the name Pacific Rim. Mm -hmm. Uh, Savage giant monsters or daikaiju have overrun our poor country, causing it to be evacuated to a large but not entirely complete extent. Yes, there are survivors eking their lives out in the ruins and the wastelands. The black of the title refers to the communications blackout of the country, which for reasons which I... I haven't really know how to figure out yet, was deliberately enacted by the PPDC, the Pan-Pacific Defence Corps, who operate the giant mechas that are used to defend Earth against the Kaiju. Uh, the blackout's effectively visualised by bringing down the geosynchronous satellite network over Australia, so you see lots of streaks of fire coming down mm-hmm. ominously. I would have thought maybe they could have somehow targeted them to hit the Kaiju as well, but, you know, <laughs> ah, you know accuracy being what it is. Now... This is a uh, an anime series, seven episodes on Netflix, so you can watch all of the first season. There is clearly a second season. I don't know when that's going to drop. Well, this is it. It's in Australia, and it's post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. It is beautifully animated, but I suppose really in a fairly standard style now. We've seen this kind of thing before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot <laughs> of red and brown sunburnt country colorations <laughs> in this. Yep. And they're kind of amusing in a way. They have two environments. They have ruined cities. Mm -hmm. So far, I've not actually seen any of our main cities apart from uh, flashbacks. They make them up. There's a place called uh, Clayton City, 
mm-hmm. suddenly upgraded, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and Meridian City. So these are like generic city ruins and stuff. And contrasting with that, they've got the wastelands. Mm-hmm. Now, the wastelands are classic Mad Max territory. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are vehicle-borne nomads that move in big convoys across them because it's safer to keep on the move than it is to stay still. Within this context, we have a couple of kids. So they're like uh, young adults, mm-hmm. you know, um, and they are the children of a father and mother pair of pilots because the idea is that the Jaegers, the Meccas, are piloted by two people in sync in what they call the drift, if okay. you remember the way that it's set out in the movie. It's actually a, a fairly perilous mental sort of gestalt, which can mm-hmm. cause feedback problems for the pilots. Not everybody can do it. In fact, people who can successfully drift together are rare. Now, these two pilots left their children in an oasis mm-hmm. out, in the, out in the desert, uh, a really nice, safe environment, and then they <laughs> took their Jaeger, which is called Hunter, and mm-hmm. went off to Sydney to try and get help. Obviously, this communications blackout has stopped them from just radioing for help. Or they, or they didn't want to because the radio waves would attract the kaiju to the oasis. So if you get the idea, they've stashed a, a busload of, of um, uh, PPDC children mm-hmm. in this oasis and then they've gone for help. They never come back. Saw that coming. Oh, yes. Five years later, mm-hmm. the children have grown up some and they discover a Jaeger in an abandoned military base, which is why, of course, the um, the original pilots left their kids there because there was a buried base, you know, and mm-hmm. perhaps they hoped that they might be able to get something from that. Or maybe that's just because they knew that was there. Mm-mm-mm. So we won't have to go into, into that too much. There's the two main kids, um, Taylor Travis, and Haley Travis, uh, a young man and a young woman, uh, played by voice actors, of course. So, and this is the older versions of them, not the five-year-before kids. Uh, Callum Worthy plays Taylor, Canadian actor. We've seen him before in the Netflix series American Vandal. And he was also um, <laughs> in National Lampoon's Thanksgiving Family Reunion, as well as the SF television series Stormworld back in 2009. And he's been in... Um, uh, supernatural and Smallville and, you know, whenever you wanted the kids sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And Gideon Adlon plays Haley, the voice of Haley, and we know her from Blockers, a comedy film from 2018, and the horror film The Craft Legacy in 2020. There's a, a variety of other actors in there, of course, doing their voice bit. Probably the most notable one from an Australian point of view, because it is set in Australia, and you do need some Australian accents in there. <laughs> Representation, yep. Yeah. Andy McPhee plays a character called Shane. <laughs> this is how Aussie can you get. He's a South Australian actor. We've seen him before in so many different things, but he played a character in the Wolf Creek television series called Beard. So if you can imagine this, not very savoury character. <laughs> In this, and he's he's pretty much playing the type in this one too. Shane is a warlord leader of a bunch of nomads. Ah, gotcha. You know these road warriors out in the desert, and they're very very interested in the existence of a functioning Jaeger. I bet because you imagine what a giant mecha would do. And of course, this country is still overrun by the Kaiju. 
So there's lots of perils there, not just the warlords in the desert, but also from the Kaiju themselves. And of course, you don't want to get caught up in a battle between a giant robot and a giant monster. <laughs> yeah. Because they'll squish you just the same. Yeah. Yeah. I actually really like this series. It's quite simple. It is a little bit like Neon Genesis Evangelion, although only <laughs> perhaps not as confusing. <laughs> Or as mystical, but it's got promise in that area, and that does develop in the first season. Okay. And I think the action is well depicted, these giant robots. You know, this is something that's just done so many times. Yeah. They, they do it well here. I think there's some touching stuff between the kids because they're carrying the burden of the legacy of their Jaeger pilot parents, plus the fact that they sort of feel in charge of this little colony of children, mm-hmm, and there mm-hmm. are consequences to that. And they don't back off from that. What's basically more or less a young adult television show. They are siblings, of course, so they drift quite well as pilots mm-hmm. in this story. So fortunately, that's a plot point that they don't have to put to too much test. They also go a lot more into the drifting process as well in this one. They show us some of the problems and some of the horrendous things that can go wrong mm-hmm. if you're not trained or not the right sort of person to pilot these things. It's kind of fun seeing apocalyptic Australia once again. It's all either city or desert or that oasis. There doesn't seem to be any suburbs or or the usual sprawl around the cities. I don't really know why they knocked the satellites down. I never could figure that out. Perhaps just to get the title in, the blackout, you know, so I don't know. (laughs) Well, I want to play a track around about now, and that track would be Copperhead. Now, this film comes with a number of villains, and in this case, Copperhead is a kaiju because they all have code names, and he is indeed copper-coloured. He or she, I don't know. I don't know how it works with these giant monsters. Anyway, this one is very aggressive, and it takes a set against the kids and their Jaeger, and it pretty much is a constant menace throughout the show. So this is Copperhead from the soundtrack of Pacific Rim, The Black, and it's by Brandon Campbell. Hi, this is Fraser Hines. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yeah, yes, Jamie, that is a big one. And Copperhead is a very big daikaiju. <laughs> what it says on the tin, a Category 4 kaiju from the animated television series Pacific Rim The Black. And that is a Netflix original series, seven episodes dropped recently on television, kind of breached into our universe. <laughs> and it's a pretty decent sequel to the Pacific Rim movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it expands successfully, I think, upon their legacy. And that's always nice. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Brandon Campbell was the composer of that track from the soundtrack album, and he's done work on Game of Thrones and The Strain and Warcraft. Remember that one? The um, Warcraft film and Dracula Untold, and also with the new Eternals movie that's coming out too. Excellent. So one to watch out for there. Well, Pacific Rim The Black is an animated series, and it is – out now, and I think I will say, having seen all seven episodes of it, I have enjoyed it. There are some funny bits in it because it is set in a post-apocalyptic Australia. You know, the idea of the road warriors spinning around in there doing donuts in the red earth. Well, you know, <laughs> nothing we haven't seen before there. But they do play it with conviction. The warlords are quite nasty pasties. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone's going to like them very much. And there is a, a wonderful character called Boy 
who reminds me of the feral kid from the Mad Max movies. He doesn't talk a lot, mm-hmm. but he has these mysterious links which will become more apparent, but not too more apparent because they've got to have a sequel to this in another series as the show goes along and you get to know more about him. And that's where it, it does remind me a bit of Neon Genesis Evangelion. It's got that yeah. kind of, oh, this is a bit philosophical, a bit deep here. Right. Okay, okay. So there's yeah. a bit of that as well. But less enigmatic. that's okay too more straightforward nothing wrong with that so as i've said the two main characters a young man and a young woman this boy character as well shane the leader of the warlords there are a couple of others who are pretty well played and atlas destroyer the jaeger in this they're all got double barreled names a bit like racehorses actually so now i'm thinking about the robot melbourne cup (laughs) <laughs> giant mechas running around a canyon or something in a race. Much preferred, fun. in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, because Keiju bashing you up, not much fun, really, when you think about it. But great fun to watch. <laughs> and that is the Pacific Rim, the Black Series, seven episodes on Netflix. Now, I think I approve of this one. Nice. Even down to the funny accents that pop up at times, some people are trying too hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, going a bit too heavy <laughs> with the accent. And you know when people who are not from Australia mm. use the idioms and the phrases? Yeah. You know, and it comes out a bit wonky. Mm. As I'm sure it does for every other country when other people try and translate into their languages. So, you know, there's one character that says, after all I've done for that bloody bludger and he'll off me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and okay. I've got to go... Uh, Yeah, maybe not quite right. (laughs) Good effort, but no. (laughs) Nice try. I didn't actually know if this could be enabled in Japanese. That would be interesting to hear this. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there'd be an option somewhere. Oh, yes. And another character who says, you get Bonza skills. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) That didn't bother me too much, all of that. It's not something that pops Mm. in. And I think they probably do add it deliberately for that extra flavour and maybe hit hit it a little extra hard just to get that, what people think is an Australian energy, even though we know it's a bit overdone. So it's not the worst. These people have been through hell, so, you know, cut them some slack. Yeah. (laughs) Then, of course, the actors who actually are Australian, when they deliver their lines, they're fine. Just go, yeah, it's just Aussie guys there. I get. All right, let's have a track to introduce our little next mini segment. Something I wanted to play last time, but we didn't get round to it. Wanda and Vision, Christoph Beck's love theme from Wanda Vision. Oh, that's so sad, you know. (laughs) And we wanted to lean back into that a little bit with Wanda and Vision. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G. If you have silicon tears, I hope you shed them all during <laughs> that track. The love theme from WandaVision, Wanda and the Vision. Christoph Beck there. Uh, <laughs> I'm still having all sorts of feels. Mm. Now, another couple in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it is very much like that, even if it is still on the television, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which has recently dropped (laughs) Disney+. Plus. God, they're hard charging here. They're not letting us have a break, really. 
Well, that's it. They need to keep our sweet subscription money, making sure that they've got something new for us every week, which I'm not mad about because, yeah, WandaVision ended and I was like, okay. And then I didn't realize this would be with us so soon. So I was very pleased when uh, Robbie said, hey, it's out. So we've both watched the first episode. Didn't do the WandaVision thing where they dropped a couple at a time. We just get the one. It's about 40 minutes or so. And... Yeah, I was interested to see what kind of show this was going to be, what the tone was, what direction we're going. Yes, it is going to be, as far as I can tell, but, you know, they they throw us some curves with these things. A buddy show yeah. with the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, what it says on the, uh, the Vibranium box. <laughs> this is a consequential show <laughs> with lots of riffs off the blip, as they call it, or the snap, wherever you want to say it, where half of all living beings in the universe were dusted for five years and then came back. And it's also a lot to do with events that happened in the other movies like Captain America, The Winter Soldier. So we're picking up on Bucky Barnes' Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. life after that, after he's been deprogrammed. And this is the joy of, I think, the series, and this is quite deliberate. We talked a bit when we did our WandaVision show that we get to see what's happening with these characters that maybe didn't get enough of, you know, there just wasn't enough time in the Avengers movies to really focus on everyone. And that's just how it is. But here we get to see, you know, Wanda and Vision have this beautiful full story and we got so much more of their character and their, you know, them as a team. And now it's, I'm ready to delve into Bucky Barnes's, you know, dark mindset and memories and PTSD, quite frankly, and a little bit about Sam's struggles. So I really am excited to see this new kind of shift focus to really zoom in on these two who are a core part of those films, but certainly they are more fringe characters in the MCU film structure. So now they get their own series. So I'm, I'm here for it. I'm ready to see more about both of them and get a bit more depth. It's interesting because they are riffs upon established characters. Mm. Sam Wilson as the Falcon is a sidekick to Steve Rogers' Captain America. And although he did end up with his own comic book too, by the way, (laughs) and um, Bucky Barnes as the Winter Soldier, you know, sidekick again to Captain America. So they both sort of branch off that main thing. And, of course, there is dramatic tension about who will end up becoming the new Captain America. And, of course, both of those characters have used the shield in the comics. Mm-hmm, and both mm-hmm. of them have actually kind of used the shield in the series, in the movies mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's an interesting dynamic tension there, something that will push them apart. We already know that these two characters, they don't exactly get on as well. They're, they're, <laughs> they're bickerthons. <laughs> Which is amazing. What a great place to start, like, you know, an unlikely duo, pitting them to work together. And also I think, you know, who are they with the absence of Steve? Like they're both quite defined by their relationship to Steve and what does that look like without him around? So I think I really loved the first episode. I can't wait for to see more. I can't wait to see more. For those of you who like to wallow in poor, wounded Bucky Sebastian Stans. <laughs> That's <and> me. <laughs> you will get that in this. There's an oh moment where you just, you know, you sink to the floor and you go, oh, that's so awful, so tragic. Mm. 
And and, all, um, and with, with Sam, his struggle to be an African-American superhero mm-hmm. in the United States, obviously that's an important trope at the moment in, in the real world as well as in the cinematic universe. There's so much in this story that they can explore, and I actually have confidence from that first episode that they're going to go there. I agree. I think they're really setting it up to be, yeah, cool. Let's talk about identity. Let's talk about some of these issues and themes that we could tackle. And yeah, I am a Sebastian Stan Stan. So I am very (laughs) keen to see more Bucky (laughs) and more of his, you know, journey outside of being the Winter Soldier. My my partner, Gail, she said, because we, you know, she likes Captain America, Steve Rogers, Chris Evans, and I'm like Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr., you know, team cap, team Tony. Mm-hmm. And, and she, she asked me the question, who do you like better out of this pair? Ooh. And I thought, well, well, they both have echoes of both, and, and the Falcon is using his winged suit with technology that's Stark tech. Very cool stuff. Some good scenes with that. They're really leaning into that the ability to have air mm-hmm. scenes. Uh, but yes, sorry, yeah. go on. And, and the Falcon I grew up with, with the, in mm. the Captain America comics too. Mm-hmm. So I, I probably lean a bit more f- towards Sam Anthony Mackie playing the character, of course. Uh, and he plays it very well with a wonderful reserved sense of humor that I love. Yeah, he's you wonderful. Know? And and let's just say that the first episode doesn't really get them together. Yes, That's not a yes. Good, you know, they're, they're, we're going to get the ship later on, and yeah. and I can't wait because it's it, it's it's really. F- Okay, it's fan service, but it's a silver service with all of the trimmings and the proper cutlery set out in all of the right places. So I think I'm going to enjoy this one. I agree. And I think it's smart too because I think right away they're setting a different tone. This is going to be a different show to WandaVision. They're going to explore their own stuff with their own tone, with their own style. And, yeah, like you said, it's the equivalent of like buddy superhero film or, you know, the unlikely, the odd couple. So I'm very much on board. Hmm. Hmm. Falcon and the Winter Soldier just dropping its first episodes on Disney Plus at the moment. All right. Well, that's about it for Zero G. We will obviously go back and have a look at that later on because it is Mm -hmm. major. Mm -hmm. And I thought we'd go out today (laughs) with a Bowie track, um, which is no surprise at all. But David Bowie, save us all. (laughs) So it's not actually by David Bowie, but it's by a group called The Modern Electric. And it's from an album called David Bowie, save us all, Redux. All right. That's it for Zero G for today. Thank you to Kayla Larson, our podcaster. And Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. And until next week, thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.